Our scripture this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 3. The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. I am so glad to see all of you here. We're going through the book of Proverbs, and as we go through the book of Proverbs, we're looking at it sort of with two lenses, how God, our Heavenly Father, parents us, and He's really good at it, and then how from that and from His Word we can learn to be parents to the children, like Zoe and all the other cute little ones that have been entrusted to our care. There's some things that we hear very often. Do you know what they did to me? I can't believe how I was mistreated. Everything seems arrayed against me. I don't have any good luck. We hear that very often, but what we rarely hear, or much less common, is, what have I done? Can I tell you something that I did wrong and I wish I hadn't? And yet, that second is the pathway to godly wisdom in a foolish world. And that's what we've been looking at in Proverbs, is how to be wise children of God in a foolish world. We, for the last several weeks, looked at some of the tools that Proverbs points us to. It illustrates almost, you might say, the use of these tools. In raising children, we have to be using creative and diverse ways of communicating wisdom. We saw that we have to learn from many teachers. God has filled our world with those that can teach us wisdom. And we saw that wisdom is not a theory. You don't really learn it from a book. Wisdom is learned by living wisely. And today, this simple truth that wisdom comes from learning responsibility for our choices And as we focus on that truth from this lonely little verse, 19, verse 3 in Proverbs, consider these three points that, first, how the foolish evade responsibility, secondly, the task of parenting, both human and divine, and then, thirdly, how teaching responsibility prepares our children to hear the gospel and to treasure the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at these things as we turn to Proverbs 19.3, a truth, maybe we would say an unsettling truth about human nature. When things go wrong, we want to blame someone. We want to blame something. And don't tell me you don't know this and you haven't experienced it in your own life because I certainly have. So things go wrong. It happens in every single person's life. You know, the men, let's say, are driving up to the men's retreat north on Route 91 And the guy misses exit three. And he says, no big deal. Take the next exit. Except the next exit is seven miles further. So he takes the next exit. He turns around. And oh, he's so mad. You know, 14 miles just to get back to where he was in the first place. He's frustrated. Maybe he feels defeated. He's angry. He rages, to use the word that's used in our text. But the thing with fools is they don't see their own responsibility. So the fool will not say, you know, I really should have been paying more attention. I wouldn't have missed that exit. Instead, the foolishness in us tends to blame someone else. You know, we pound the steering wheel, we're angry. We say, oh, this state is so backward. Why can't they have more exits? Can't believe that there's miles and miles between them. So that's what it's talking about here. Fools don't see their own responsibility. 
fools, in fact, avoid taking responsibility by blaming someone else. That's how they evade their own responsibility. So we know that this much-coded text in Matthew 7 mentions don't judge others. First take the log out of your own eye, then you can see the splinter in your brother's eye. We've heard that, and really Jesus is painting a somewhat comical view there of ourselves. He makes us want to smile at ourselves. A funny image that it's obvious to others. It's obvious to others our tendency to avoid responsibility and blame others. It's as obvious as a log sticking out of our eye. But we ourselves don't see it. So the fools don't see their own responsibility, but they're happy to blame someone else. And so what this text is saying and what Matthew 7 is saying is deal with what you're responsible for. Then you can see the other person's fault. The other person may be 10% at fault, maybe 99% at fault. But the point is, the question God is asking is, what were you supposed to do? What were you responsible for? But this question is drowned out in the fool's ears by blaming someone else. There's long speeches about how everyone else and everything else in this fool's life is wrong and is to blame for the predicament in which he or she finds themselves. But as this proverb says, it all began with a foolish choice and then the way after that was twisted and things didn't go, the fool wanted them to go, but the fool doesn't see his own responsibility. As Proverbs 12:15 says, the way a fool seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. It seems right. Of course I'm going to go that way. Everything is in control. I know what to do. And yet the end of it is not what they expected. Now, of course, our proverb says something else. I said fools evade responsibility by blaming others, but our text says that the fool actually rages against God. And yet, in blaming others, others that are put into our lives by the hand of God, others who rule over us because authority is delegated by God, in blaming others, we are indirectly still blaming God. We're still raging against God. So sometimes we blame leaders and employers. Sometimes we blame politicians, governments. Sometimes we blame parents. Sometimes we blame wives. We blame husbands. All of those are in some way a provision for us, aren't they? And all of those, as I said, are delegated with God's authority and put over us. And so when we rail against them, when we rage against them, we are indirectly raging against God. A perfect illustration of this is in Genesis chapter 3, a story you've heard many times, the account of Adam and Eve. Remember, God said, don't eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve ate of it and then gave some to Adam to eat. But what happens afterwards? You remember what happened that God appeared and God said, what have you done, Adam? Adam, did you eat from that tree of which I said, you shall not eat? And notice Adam's words because this tendency is in all of Adam's children, this foolish tendency to evade responsibility. What did he say? He said, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Yeah, he's blaming the woman, but it's more than that. He's saying, Lord, it's the woman you gave me. Really, it's your fault. You know, I was fine before she came along. Nothing would have happened if she wasn't here. And who put her here? You did, Lord. It's your fault. So we often, in blaming others, are really blaming God. 
I've often referred to Matthew chapter 25 in this series on Proverbs because so many of the lessons in that parable seem to be reflected in the book of Proverbs. But you remember in that text in Matthew chapter 25, it's a picture of a master who really represents God, who has three employees, shall we say. He gives money to all of them. He says, okay, start a small business, <laughs> work hard, make money, and I'll talk to you. You can give accounts when I come back. And two of them do that. They invest the money, they do well, but the third one hides it under the mattress, so to speak. Doesn't want to do anything with it. Now, the master, the boss comes back, and the third servant gives it all back to him and says, here, it's safe. I'm done. And the master says, what happened? How come you didn't make any money with the money I gave you? And then you see this evasion of responsibility by blaming someone else. In this case, the master himself, God. He says, I, I knew that you were hard. That you would reap what you did not sow. You were demanding. And I knew you were angry. I didn't want to get you angry because everybody knows that you have a trigger temper. So you know what I did? I just kept your money safe so I could just give it back to you and your temper wouldn't be aroused and everything would be fine. It's not my fault. It's your fault for who you are, the kind of master you are, the kind of God you are. And so in this parable, Jesus draws the lesson to a focus, I think, right where our proverb does. He says, all right, let me even accept your premise. Suppose I am demanding then why didn't you at least put the money in the bank so it could have earned interest? Why did you put it under your mattress? In other words, the master is saying, what were you responsible for? Assuming all that, assuming all the evil that you think there is in the world, what should you have done? Why did you make this foolish choice? You see another example of evasion of responsibility, really, by blaming God. So we rage against the Lord by lashing out against our circumstances, by lashing out against our birthplace, our families, our parents. One woman I was reading, she, had, she was so angry. She was raging against her mom. I know none of you have ever done that, so I can read this safely. She said, she never made me do the dishes or cook or clean. Now, if I was a kid, my friend was in that situation, I'd say, you lucky duck. I mean, give me a break. You don't have to do anything around the house. Why are you mad when she grows up? Why does she hate her mom? Here's what she says. Now I can't have company over because I don't know how to cook. Poor thing. Apparently she can't buy a cookbook. She can't look on the internet. She can't boil hot dogs. I mean, come on, start somewhere. Take responsibility for what you are able to do. Instead, it's fun and easier to blame someone else evade taking responsibility myself. And so people do that. Our culture is full of that. We lash out against circumstances. We lash out against other people. We say, it's not my fault. It's, you know, I've had a string of bad luck. That's all it is. It's kismet. It's karma. It's the stars. They're just not in my favor. Not my responsibility. So that's what the fool does. So the fool is buffeted by failure and strain and frustration due to their choices, but the fool never actually learns, never actually gets wiser 
because they don't take responsibility for what they've done. They don't know what they've done wrong and what they could have done differently because it's not my fault. Everybody else has to change, not me. The wise take responsibility and grow. So here's what Proverbs 17, verse 10 says. A rebuke, one rebuke, just one rebuke, impresses a man of discernment more than 100 lashes for a fool. You know, a fool can a hundred times fall flat on his face and not learn anything. But just one rebuke and a wise man, a wise woman, listens and grows, gets wiser. So here's Proverbs. And this is a wonderful little proverb, a nugget that's packed with so much truth about human nature and about our life on this world. It's giving us, though, a key tool for parenting our children. And it's just this. Make sure you teach your children to be responsible for their choices. Teach your children to be responsible for the actions they take. God does that for us, his children. He trains us to be responsible. What does he do? I mean, you can read anywhere in the Old Testament, read the histories of the Israelites or really even his dealings with the church. He teaches us. He warns us of consequences. And then when we don't, follow what he wants us to do. He allows us to taste the result of our foolish choices. We face and experience the consequences of those foolish choices. So Proverbs, for example, is full of warnings about foolish choices. I don't have to go over them now because hopefully we'll be going over one by one, many of them, but it warns us about our words over and over and over again. It warns us about anger and self-control warns us about our choice of friends. It warns us about drinking. It warns us about many things. And essentially say, okay, if you don't listen, if you don't follow, then you'll have to taste the consequences. You learn that you're responsible for your choices. What if after all those warnings we still don't listen? Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. And I think in many ways this is a very difficult text. In many ways a heartbreaking text for those who love children or Love their own children, for that matter. Look what he says here. So here, wisdom is speaking, but as you listen to wisdom speak, you should realize that you're really listening to the voice of God speaking. Verse 22, how long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel, did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge. I did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. Then listen to this. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. They shall eat of the fruit of their own way. Verse 32, for the waywardness of the naive will kill them. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. 
It's a picture here of God speaking. We wouldn't ever want our children to hear these words from God, would we? It would break our hearts to have God speak like this. And yet, this is the way God speaks to us, to his children, to all of them. At some point, he says, I will allow you to taste the fruit of your own choices. It's not that God takes pleasure in this. I think you can see here even there's a heartbreak, but in some places it's so explicit that it's almost confusing what God is saying. This afternoon, go home and read Hosea chapter 11. God is bringing judgment on his children and yet his heart is broken. He's almost arguing with himself. He says, oh, how can I discipline those who I love so dearly and yet I must. He says, I must roar like a lion. I hate to see them frightened, but I must roar like a lion to keep them from destructive ways and their foolish choices. I think it breaks God's heart to do this, and yet, because he loves us, he does it. I think it broke my dad's heart to give us cigarettes. We were young boys. I was very young. My brother was three years older, just little boys, and somehow we got the idea that smoking cigarettes was a good idea. And so we went and we rolled up little pieces of paper and we lit them on one end, and, you know, in the smoke, we pretended we were smoking cigarettes. And my dad found out. And didn't take much sleuthing because we were doing it in his bedroom and all the burnt-up pieces were all around. You know, we just left them. You know how kids are. You don't pick up your toys. So we just left them there. So he says, oh, you like smoking, do you? Let me give you a taste of the fruit of your ways. If this is your choices, where will it lead? So he brought us in to the dining room table. We sat down. And he says, so you like to smoke. Let me get you a beardy. Now, some of you know what a beardy is, some of you don't. It's a cigarette they sell in India, but it's much stronger than an ordinary cigarette. It's a little thin conical thing with tobacco inside and a tobacco leaf wrapped on the outside. And while we were waiting for the beardy to arrive, we were so happy. I can't believe he's going to let us smoke. This is fabulous, you know. My brother says, I'm going to blow rings. I've been watching. I think I know how to blow rings. And I said, I'm going to blow smoke out of my nose. It's fabulous. We were just so happy. And the beardy arrived. Somebody lit it, got it going, and it was handed to my older brother. He was older. So it was given to him, and he took a long drag, coughed a little, turned green, slumped down in the chair. And I got up, and I just ran. I ran and ran and ran. They never caught me. I never took a, never took a drag. And you know what? Neither he nor I have ever smoked. Here's where it leads. Is this what you really want? Is this really the fruit that you want to taste? God allows us to taste the consequences of our foolish choices so that we learn responsibility. And really, parents are asked by God to do exactly the same thing. We show love to our children, not by protecting them from every consequence, every result of foolish choices they make, but by teaching their children to be responsible for what they've said, what they've done, and the choices they've made in life. As they taste these choices, they learn responsibility. So scripture says we should train children early on. It's easiest when they're early. You begin at Zoe's age, don't you? Zoe, you've got to be responsible. 19, 18 in Proverbs says, discipline your son for in that there is hope. Don't be a willing party to his death. Strong words. Proverbs 22, 6. Start children off in the way they should go, 
And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Teach these disciplines early on. Teach them to be responsible. That this is, this is life. You're responsible for what you choose. So what's the training? It's actually very simple. There's a basic law of life, you might say, a principle that we all have to teach our children and really that we all have to learn and sometimes we haven't learned it. It's in Proverbs 14, 14 says, the faithless will be fully repaid for their ways and the good man rewarded for his. The faithless will be fully paid for their ways. It's put even more clearly in Galatians 6, verse 7, whatever you sow, that will you also reap. What you sow, you will reap. There's no way around it. It's a law of life. And so because we love them, we train them. We don't shield them from every difficulty, every challenge that comes into their life. We don't jump to their defense. We don't excuse them before, you know, teachers and police and employers and everybody else, even though our hearts are longing to do that. I mean, when they were little, like the baby, you know, we, we protected them from everything. We didn't even let people touch them lest they get sick from germs. But as they're getting older, our heart still wants to do that. And it breaks our hearts to do it, but we want to train them. And if we really love them, we will. That's what Proverbs tells us. A counselor, a family counselor said this, when you choose to discipline, you choose your children over yourself. In other words, she's saying that you're choosing to be unselfish when you discipline your child. When you refuse, you're really being selfish. It's really what Proverbs says, isn't it? In many places, but 13, 24, the rod here is a symbol of discipline. It says, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. It's an expression of love to discipline our children. Yeah, so I think it's hard emotionally. I mean, you look at these beautiful little faces and, you know, they're always beautiful to a mom and a dad and we always want to protect them. But it's not just hard emotionally, it's also hard on the parent because it makes demands on our own character. To enforce the punishment often feels like we're punishing ourselves or we have to punish ourselves. Let me just give you some examples of that. To punish, we have to have self-discipline. You know, we, we have to do what we're going to say, but there has to be that consistency of the rule. If you make a mess at the dinner table, if you misbehave at the dinner table, you're going to get no dessert. And then what happens? Well, you misbehave at the dinner table, you get no dessert. I don't want to do that, but you know what? You chose this. This was the rule. You knew the rule. We enforce it every time, and I have to enforce it again. It's disciplined. If we're not disciplined ourselves, how can we teach discipline to our children? So it calls into question our own character, doesn't it? We grow, I should say. There has to be follow-through. God is patient. God is slow to anger. He boasts in that. And yet, his word is not to be treated lightly. We can't ignore it. So we should not make empty threats. You know how it is. You're driving down the highway and two kids are fighting in the back. And you say, if you guys don't quit fighting, I'm going to drop you off on this highway and leave you here. You know you're not going to do that. They know you're not going to do that. But you couldn't think of anything else. I mean, you're desperate. You have to make some threat, but it's not one that you can actually follow through on. To follow through is difficult. It takes time. In fact, it interrupts your day. It interrupts you in doing all the other worthwhile things you have to do, like looking after the other kids. It's a difficult thing, and yet it has to be done. Planning 
to do it prayerfully, to do it in consultation, mom and dad, to do it with wisdom and counsel from many sources is difficult and yet it's essential. Rather than reacting to a momentary emotion, you know what you're going to do. You know what's wise and good for this child at this particular time in his or her life. But it's hard. It's hard. I mean, what do you do to a kid screaming for candy in a grocery store? If you know, write a book on it. It'll be a bestseller. I know what I do. I don't judge. I don't judge the mom or the dad that's struggling because I've been there. I know how hard it is. But I know this. It would be easier, not easy, but it would be easier if there was a planned, wise, consistent discipline in the home. And when that's true, children tend to be aware of that and tend to respond to discipline everywhere. God disciplines us and we're to discipline our children by teaching them that they're responsible for the choices they make. It's hard work, but actually it's worth it. First of all, it'll prepare them to be blessed all through their life. They'll be blessed if they learn responsibility. But even more importantly, you're preparing their hearts to hear the gospel and to treasure the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our first priority, you know that, our first priority is to prepare their hearts for the gospel. It's not something that parenting books will share with you, but it's critical. When they face troubles due to their foolish choices, our natural inclination, at least mine, is to just coddle them and protect them and commiserate with them about how others are to blame. But in doing so, you see, we're falling into what Proverbs 19.3 warns us against. Don't blame others. That's what the fools do. But we have to teach them to ask themselves this question. Yeah, they did this. This happened. I was born in the wrong home. All that. But what is my responsibility? What does God expect from me? Did I do what God called me to do? And why is that crucial? Because if there's no responsibility, there's no failure before God. If there's no failure before God, there's really no need for forgiveness. So unless we see our responsibility before God for our foolish choices, we see no value in the cross at all. You know, when I stand before God, I won't be able to say, yeah, yeah, I hit him, but you know what? He hit me first. God's going to say, okay, maybe he hit you first, but what did you do? Did you do what I called you to do? Are you responsible? Did you take responsibility for your actions? In a foolish world that we live in, we hear people that are not responsible for anything. I live like this. I make these choices because, well, I was mistreated. And there's a lot of circumstances, a lot of people that mistreated me. And of course, some of it may be true. Parents mistreated me. My genetics have determined the way I am. You can't argue with that. It's the laws of nature. You know, men have actually written serious articles saying that the reason they harass and abuse women is because it's evolution. Millions of years of evolution have taught me that that's what males do. Can't blame me. I'm, I'm not responsible for my behavior. Well, if you're not responsible for your behavior, then there's no need for forgiveness. And if there's no need for forgiveness, there's definitely no need for the cross. What room is there in that heart for the gospel? None. I find many people, actually many people today, who don't see any point in the cross, or they really miss the point of the cross. I think there might be people even in this room, if I were to ask, why did Christ die? They'll say, well, because he loves me. Yeah, but you know, your mommy loves you. She didn't die for you. Why was it necessary out of love for Christ to die? And most people 
have no idea. They don't realize that this was necessary. The shame and the pain that he bore, the spiritual burden that he took because of the consequences of our foolish choices. And the reason they don't appreciate that is because they don't feel responsible. You know, the old hymn now is sung differently. You know that. We sang Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But in many places, many churches, that last line is changed. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. A soul. A wretch is a little hard, you know. Soul is a little safer. But then what's so amazing about that grace? So those who take responsibility, those who have been brought through life are really prepared for this good news of the gospel. Those who know that, that every choice they make, every word that comes out, every action that they take, they're responsible for, are ready for the good news of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's a law. There's a law which leaves us gasping for breath. It's in many places. Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a way which seems right to a person. You know, I know which way to go. I don't need your advice. I don't need God to tell me. There's a way that seems right to a person, but the end of it is death. There's consequences. You can choose what you want, but if you choose the wrong path, the end of it is destruction, chaos, trouble. And so... People say, I can choose what I want. And you can. You can choose what to say. You can choose the kind of humor. You can choose the kind of language you use. You can choose the kind of behavior sexually you want. You can choose what to do with your money. You can choose what to do with your time. You can choose what to do with your energy. But the end of it might be death if you're on the wrong path. That's what Scripture says. There's a consequence for your choices. It's the law that Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36. Scary words. He says you'll have to give an account for every idle word you speak. Yeah, there's a consequence. I choose the words I speak. I have to give an account for it. There's a consequence for this choice I make and even the words I speak. And it's the law of Galatians 6, 7. What you sow, you will reap. So there's this law of the universe. It's a scary law, and yet it governs our lives. And friends, I want to tell you, we try to evade the burden of that law by blaming someone else. You know, you're going to reap what you sow. Yeah, but I didn't sow it. He did. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's their fault. So we evade the force of this law by blaming someone else. But friends, there's only one way to break this law. The law says you reap what you sow, but there's one place where it's broken, where it's shattered in pieces, and that's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think about it. We were foolish, as this proverb says, but Jesus took the consequences. He took the blame we deserved for our foolish choices. We sowed, but he reaped. We sowed sin and evil, but he reaped death and shame on the cross for our sakes. We deserved punishment, but he was wounded for our sins so that we could have life. That's the gospel. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That law that we know operates in life is shattered at the cross by God's grace for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were redeemed from the eternal consequences of our foolish choices, the choices for which we were surely responsible. And we were redeemed because Christ intervened with his grace and his love and his forgiveness. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Praise God for his gift to us in the cross of Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, prepare us for your grace to us in Christ Jesus. Pray for our young people. We pray for little kids, Lord. We pray for those who are being raised by parents now that they would know the burden of this law which weighs us down and the delight, the life in the gospel which shatters that law and frees us and liberates us. We pray for parents, Lord. All of us, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, all of us, Lord, whose hearts break at even a single tear welling up in the eye of one of these sweet little children. Give us wisdom, Lord, to teach them responsibility for the choices they make. Let us love them deeply and dearly. Love them enough, Lord, to prepare them to appreciate and treasure what Christ has done for them on the cross. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Would you just stand for a word of benediction before we leave? You know, all kinds of studies show that the people who are successful are not those who blame other people, are not those who excuse their faults, but over and over the studies find that the ones who are most successful are the ones who look at their own lives most critically and most often they look at their lives critically. It's really Psalm 51 where the psalmist says, show me my errors, show me my faults, cleanse me. And then he says, I'll have joy. Then he says, I'll have confidence to teach others to be fruitful in my life. And so that's the benediction for all of us. May God give us grace to see our weaknesses and rely on his grace so that we can grow in wisdom. Amen.